This episode is made possible by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, working to build a more healthy, just, and inclusive future for everyone at czi.org. Well, another morning, another day, another mask. I am getting so tired of talking through this mask and feeling the humidity of my own breath. This is the new normal for hospital workers on the front line of this pandemic. So I'm walking towards the emergency room entrance and there's National Guardsmen out front with our security, taking temperatures of everybody that comes in the building and handing everybody a mask. ICU doctor Shanti Akers and Chaplain Will Runyon both work at a regional hospital in rural southwest Georgia. They knew the big city hospitals were overwhelmed with coronavirus patients, and they knew it would come to their corner of Georgia, too. But being in a smaller hospital, they never thought it would be like this. Every morning I wake up and I I think this is still a dream because we never dreamed we would ever be in such a situation. In this episode, we'll spend some time with Dr. Akers and Chaplain Will, who walk us through the unique challenges of fighting a pandemic in rural America, where there are more high-risk patients, fewer resources, and a smaller safety net, if there is one at all. And later, we spend some time on the road with one man in West Texas who is trying to help rural hospitals get the supplies they need. From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm William Brangham. Chaplain, what is it? What's the help me understand this? What's the proper thing to call you? Like, do I refer to you as Father, Chaplain, Will? Will is fine. Chaplain Will. Um, I spoke with Chaplain Will and Doctor Akers on one of their days off from Phoebe Putney. That's the regional hospital where they both work. Hi, Doctor Akers. This is William Brangham. Hi. How are you? Phoebe Putney Hospital is in Albany, Georgia, a small city of seventy-five thousand in the southwest corner of the state. It's a rural community surrounded by farms, pecan farms, cotton farms. I guess they call them plantations down here. The number of coronavirus cases in their county isn't as high as some other hotspots. But on a per capita basis, their outbreak is nearly as bad as New York's. The first case that popped up in Albany, the so-called index case, was early March. A man came down from Atlanta for a friend's funeral. He didn't know he was carrying the virus. You know, we live in the South. People really embrace each other. When they see each other, they shake hands. And you can imagine that's that much more amplified when you're at a funeral. People are crying. They're wiping their tears. They're touching each other. They're possibly not performing hand hygiene. They're not really thinking of those sort of things because it's a funeral. They're grieving actively. And similarly, these are people that maybe not have been likely to gather for any other reason. I mean, it's like if you almost wanted to design a perfect way to disperse a virus in a community, you would create all of those things that you're describing, a crowded, emotional, long event. Exactly, exactly. And from there, it just spread like wildfire through Albany, Georgia. And it quickly became a very, very serious situation. Um, We thought we were prepared with, um, you know, we had six months worth of N95 masks and gowns stocked up just from having experienced the Ebola outbreak and trying to make all the preparations necessary to to go through something like this. And we used six months worth of equipment in five days. Wow. Yeah. So by the second week, we had filled up one of our ICUs. 
by the week after, we had filled up another ICU. And very quickly, our volume of cases coming through the door just multiplied. And so we quickly dedicated almost a third to more, almost closer to a half, to be honest with you, of our hospital became purely for COVID patients. Our hospital had shut down the operating rooms pretty much at the time that we found out about these index cases and we had this anticipation of what was to come in our future. We had to literally lock the building down. We've got two entrances. Uh, the National Guard teams are helping us staff that and, and screen people as they come in and Every employee gets their temperature taken every time they come in the building. You know, I, I get it that you're in a hospital in the middle of a pandemic, but still, that seems kind of crazy. Uh, what is that like every day, walking into that? I think the real thing that strikes me is just the sheer quietude of what I hear when I go into work. You get greeted, you know, by some lovely people that are manning those entrances for us. But then after that, it's just it's just quiet and I may or may not pass somebody on the way to the elevator. I may even be riding that elevator alone, which is incredibly uncommon. Yeah, in our community, we, we typically have large families uh, and they go everywhere together. It was not uncommon to hear small children running up and down the hall and in the lobbies, uh, laughing and playing and screaming, even though we really try to encourage people not to bring small children into the hospital anyway, but now there's none of that. It's a very sterile environment. Yeah, there's also there's some new sounds too, right? There's there's like the rustle of PPE. <laughs> you start recognizing that when a gown is being put on and you know, and, and the conversations are different that you that you catch people in the halls. You know, if I were to see, you know, Chaplain Will, it would have been, Hey, how was your weekend? You know, did you go somewhere? Did you do that? You know, and now it's sort of hi. How are you? Are you holding up? <laughs> you doing okay? You know, those yeah. those noises are different too. Well, even talking to each other in the hospital now with when you have a respirator on and a cover covering that, yeah. you don't realize yeah. how much you read lips on a day-to-day basis until you can't see their face. Right. Um, and it's hard to describe how difficult it is to even communicate on a basic level. Hmm. One thing that has been hard for me in particular, and I'm sure Chaplain Will probably notices the same thing, which is so much of your doctoring or your healing comes through physical touch and contact. And when I don't have that patient's family in front of me to do that, you know, you feel a little bit like you're some robot who's calling them on the phone to tell them some terrible news and they in no way can, there's no way for you to express that empathy and that sense of we're here with you, you know, we're trying our best. We really hope to pull your loved one through this. Right. You know, part of what chaplains do is bring that human touch back to healthcare. I mean, we, we sit at the bedside, we hold a patient's hand, talk, pray. But now we're having to do that through rubber gloves and masks and goggles. And one of the ways that we've been able to, to still involve our families uh, are through We've, we raided our IT department, found some iPads for us and set those up so we could use you know, GoToMeeting and FaceTime and to bring the families into the room on the iPad. So I'll stand with the iPad and let the families talk to their loved ones. Many of these visits are actually the last visits that these families will ever make to their, to their family member. I know you're used to doing and being at these very intimate moments with people, but this seems a whole other order. 
It's beyond anything I've ever imagined and it's hard to describe. We had a, a 50 year old patient that had come in just several days ago, just a healthy 50 year old. And this virus decided to attack his lungs very aggressively. Um, so the, the medical team has been working with him to try to get him better, to do all the things that we know to do. Nothing was working. So we, we called the family to get them on, on the phone to tell them, you know, everything that we're, we're doing is not working and he's dying. I think we had about eight family members finally join in a FaceTime call. And I took them in to the room and I, I kind of explained to them what they were going to see. Your loved one is in the bed. He's on the ventilator. He's not responding. This particular gentleman was on a dialysis machine, so there were lines running everywhere. So once I prepared them for that, I'll turn, I'll turn the iPad around just so they can see him. And it's an immediate just outpouring of grief and emotion. Um, you know, there's, there's pumps beeping, the monitors are beeping. There's the constant roar of the fan that we're having to use to create a negative pressure environment uh, because of the disease itself. So it's very loud, it's very difficult to hear they were pleading with him to get up out of the bed and, and you've got to get better. We need you back here. It was one of the most emotional outpourings of, of grief and wailing and crying and pleading for, for these family members that I've, I've experienced so far. It's just, it's just incredibly difficult to hear families grieve through an iPad. Once I finally got done and out of the room, I had to break down myself because the weight of that day, there were so many of those visits in that moment, just, I had to let it out. Do you feel spiritually, emotionally prepared for this? I think yes and no, but to the level that we're doing it right now, no. Uh, I don't think anybody could be prepared for that. For all the grief and heartache that this pandemic is causing, a lot of people who get sick do survive. And both Chaplain Will and Dr. Akers said those moments are what keep them going. When we do have successes, you know, we have these cheering parties when people are discharged from the hospital, where everyone who gets in the hallway, you know, cheers and claps for them as they're discharged. And I mean, that thing, ha that has to be something we do all the time, because I don't know if you feel like this, you know, Will, but I have... There, it, it brings me to tears almost every time. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I never hear about one happening where I'm not like, oh, I'm, I'm too busy. I'm always like, yes, I need to participate in that. Yeah. I need to be there for that. We need to see somebody walk out of here looking healthy and like they're happy. I almost wish that we could announce that overhead in the speakers to yeah. let people know, hey, we're getting ready to discharge somebody or somebody's going out of the ICU to the medical floor. Yeah. Do you ever have moments where you forget what's happening? I sometimes find that I, I will have these moments, sometimes I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and then I will remember what's happening. Or I'll have a moment during the day where I'm, my mind goes to something else and then I come back. Do, you, do either of you ever have that experience? Yes, I, I do. They largely are at home though, um, not so much at the hospital. At the hospital it's really hard to forget, but I have young children. And I have never been so grateful for their noise and their, you know, when they fight or when they yell or something, because to them, 
to them, it's probably like, I know, mom, it's coronavirus, but it's you've never been more grateful when you come home just to be greeted with like the cacophony of just young voices, like shouting, whatever it is, because that's like the only normal, you know, that's children have a great way of having you forget your troubles, I think. Yeah. And they're, they're so resilient, too, that, uh, you know, they just kind of roll with how things go. We get. We get so stuck in our routines and right, right. everything that we're used to. It's it's harder to adapt, I think, as a as an adult. Chaplain Will, do you ever have moments where you forget? Yeah, I think so. Um, the first couple of weeks that it hit um, our hospital in Albany, uh, I, I got to the point where I couldn't sleep. I would sleep uh, maybe till one or two in the morning, and then I was up. And my mom was racing, and it was just a constant replaying of the day before and when what's happening and kind of the stress of all that. Um, but I was able to get some medication and help with the sleep. So that helps me a lot. So I'm not so constantly replaying all the visits and all the things that are happening. Um, but, but it does, it it feels so surreal every day when we wake up, but it it doesn't, you know, the house doesn't look like there's a pandemic and the neighborhood doesn't look any different. And it's beautiful here in Albany in South Georgia right now. Everything's blooming and it's warm. Spring does have a way of making everything feel new again. But by a lot of actual public health measures, like how many people in Georgia are still testing positive for coronavirus, things are not okay. But several states, including Georgia, are reopening for business. And Dr. Akers and Chaplain Will are worried it's too soon. It's just insane to me to think that we're still having people die in our ICUs every day, but people want to open up the economy again. And it just, it makes absolutely no sense because they can't see it face to face and firsthand what's happening in the hospitals. It's a particular source of stress when you know that you're a resource stressed area. You know, I have friends at large institutions around the country, um, large academic centers that have, you know, they have a large pool of critical care doctors. They have a large pool of nurses or just other staff. And we don't have that. And additionally, we happen to be one of the only hospitals within, within that area that we live in that is as large as we are. So there may be some surrounding counties that have no hospitals. There's a few that do have hospitals, but they're 25 bed hospitals. And so we know that they will be overwhelmed as well. But even if cases don't spike again in Dr. Aker's community, there's an underlying problem here, and it's not unique to Georgia. Rural hospitals were having a hard time staying afloat before the pandemic. Nearly half were operating in the red, and one in four were at risk of closing. And then the virus came. Hey, this is John Henderson. It's about four o'clock on Friday afternoon. John Henderson knows this struggle better than most. For 16 years, he ran the small rural hospital in his hometown of Childress, Texas, population 6,045. Texas, and have spent my day delivering about 120 gallons of hand sanitizer to four different hospitals in West Texas. Uh, I'm just on the highway back home, and it's been a pretty day and a pretty drive. There are actually wildflowers uh, blooming here in Texas. These days, Henderson runs the Texas Organization of Rural and Community Hospitals. 
Before the pandemic, his job was pretty nine to five, lobbying the Texas legislature in a coat and tie or hosting webinars. But now he and a small army of volunteers are building their own homemade supply chain. It's a pallet of hand sanitizer on a pickup that meets another pickup and fans out going, you know, north, south, east, and west to make those deliveries. They're logging tens of thousands of miles, hand-delivering protective gear to hospitals across the state. Masks, gowns, and even ventilators, or vents as he calls them. What we're seeing is a really uneven and unpredictable display of COVID cases in rural counties and hotspots across the state. Happened twice last week, uh, once in a small community in the Panhandle of Texas that had a hunt, went from two to a hundred cases in a couple of days and literally couldn't transfer patients and ran out of vents. And so we paired them with another rural hospital in central Texas with some extra vents and flew those from one site to the other and then literally trying to meet people at airports and uh, gas stations all over the state has been a wild experience to say the least. But now, with the usual supply chain so broken, Henderson will follow almost any lead, no matter where it goes. A friend connected me to another friend of his that knew someone at an oil and gas production facility on the Mexico side of the border that had converted all of their production to surgical masks. Um, They got those from Mexico to a warehouse in Austin. I met him and bought all of the supply that he had and started trying to send 70,000 surgical masks around the state. And they literally at the warehouse asked me if I wanted to sit down and drink some tequila with them, which made me nervous. <laughs> and I, said, I said, no, thanks. I appreciate the mask. I got to go. Oh, that's great. I bet you never imagined you'd be this sort of uh, PPE procurement dealer character when you first got into this. Never in my wildest dreams, but the thing that I did know I was signing up for was to do whatever it takes to help these little rural hospitals survive. So it's not what I had planned, obviously, but I'm happy to keep doing it if it moves the needle a little bit for those frontline caregivers, especially who are trying to be safe as they care for all of us. Obviously, it's, it's a fantastic service you're providing, but it just seems to highlight the issue that Hospitals are having to cobble this together with, you know, hand sanitizer on the back of pickup trucks and ventilators and trucks going back and forth. Um, I guess that's just the world we're living in right now. Well, I think the, the positive aspect of it is that you truly do see the very best in people in challenging times like this. The frustrating part is, you know, we're in the United States of America and you think to yourself, how in the hell did we let this happen? And how do you answer that question? (laughs) (laughs) I don't answer that question. It's probably more accurate to say I wrestle with that question. How the hell did we let this happen? Maybe a pandemic of this size takes everyone by surprise, and there's only so much preparation you can do. 
But one thing we know for sure is that the people Henderson is trying to help, rural Americans, are more likely to have the kind of underlying medical conditions that put them at even greater risk when it comes to this virus. Rural populations generally are older, poorer, and sicker. So you have more poor poverty population, which is Medicaid and the uninsured. And then you have, generally speaking, more comorbidities like diabetes, more obesity, which can be challenging in normal circumstances, even more challenging uh, during a crisis like we're in. In some ways, it seems like an incredible mismatch that the uninsured people with really more need and more demand for health care are being served by facilities that may not be as well equipped as larger, better funded places. That's right. Rural Texas hospitals specifically were on the ropes and had had numerous closures uh, prior to the pandemic. We've had 20 rural hospital closures in Texas since 2010, which is double any other state. And, you know, the reality on the ground when you find yourself in a community that no longer has a hospital or a clinic and relies on EMS or ambulance care solely to get to a hospital, when you find yourself 30 or 60 miles away from that, it gets pretty scary pretty quick. So all of these challenges that you're describing of the patient population, rural hospitals struggling just to stay afloat, that's all prior to a global pandemic. <laughs> then the pandemic comes. Uh, that's just got, seems like it's got to complicate things even more. Oh, yeah. It's the same challenges amplified and layered on top of it come the PPE shortages, inability to perform testing and even know uh, how many cases you have in the community you serve. It's, it's near impossible. As if facing a pandemic wasn't enough, this virus is stressing hospitals in a whole new way. Since the outbreak, a lot of hospitals stopped all elective surgeries. They wanted less people coming through their doors, and they wanted to preserve all that protective gear. But elective surgeries are a big moneymaker for hospitals, and the pandemic cut off that income right when they needed it most. The, the CEOs I've talked to say that that's as much as 50% of their operating revenue. Wow. So we've ground to a halt intentionally. I don't think anyone would say that was a bad decision. It was the right thing to do for those communities. But there are financial operational consequences to that. A rural hospital CEO recently conveyed to me that the hardest decision of his career was whether to lay off frontline clinical staff so that he could make payroll or buy masks and gloves and gowns to protect those, those folks. I, I can't believe a hospital executive is in that position today. Yeah, uh, it's... Uh, like I said, it's impossible. Rural hospitals have been on the brink for a decade, and lots of people worry this crisis could push even more of them over the edge. But everywhere you look, people are trying to make the impossible a little less so. Dr. Akers and Chaplain Will in Georgia helping patients and their families through a heartbreaking, scary time. John Henderson in Texas getting life-saving equipment into the hands of caregivers, each playing their part on the front lines of this pandemic. 
This episode was created in several living rooms, basements, and any quiet corner of the house we could find. It was produced by Vika Aronson and Gretchen Frazee and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Production assistance from Bella Isaacs and Rebecca O. Oh. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Jason Kane and to Laura Santanum for their research and guidance, and to Avery Henderson for her technical support. Thanks also to Travis Daub, Vanessa Dennis, and James Williams. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. And don't forget, you can follow all of our coronavirus coverage on air and on our website, pbs.org newshour. Thank you for listening. <laughs>